This is James Young with Morgan & Morgan. You're listening to the Whistleblower Attorneys Podcast, where we discuss the history of whistleblowers and how you can uncover and report fraud against the government. Brought to you by whistlebloweratorneys.com. Welcome to the second installment of a six-part podcast discussing whistleblowers and the law. Today, we'll be discussing the circumstances that lead someone to become a whistleblower and the course of events that follow. I'd like to begin initially by addressing a misconception about whistleblowers that many people seem to have and defendants try to portray, that they are, quote, in it for the money. Well, in my experience representing these brave people, money is the last thing on their minds. The reality is that most whistleblowers never actually see a dime. Beyond that, almost every client we have had has tried to address or fix the issues internally without any potential for monetary gain. Whistleblowers are people who just want to do the right thing. They just happen to be brave enough to speak up about it. Make no mistake, making the decision to speak up and expose corruption, fraud, or even crimes takes a toll on one's psyche. One of the roles we end up playing in representing whistleblowers is that of therapist. Imagine for a second that your entire working world comes to a crashing halt as a result of you trying to do the right thing. The extent to which companies and individuals will go to protect their ill-gotten gains in fraudulent ways is limitless. So, to better describe the impact this has, I thought we would use a hypothetical scenario where an honest person is exposed to fraud at work and see how it plays out. For this example, we'll use Mary. Mary is a nurse at a local for-profit hospital. She's asked to code or bill certain procedures in a way which is contrary to how she was taught, and it's contrary to how CMS reimbursement guidelines read. At the first instance, she inquires why and explains the contradictions. She's either brushed aside or presented with support for this fraud, but ultimately, Mary goes along with the directive. When Mary goes home or on break, she will undoubtedly seek to confirm her beliefs and discuss the situation. In doing so, she'll face a difficult decision. Should she confront the practice the next day at work and face retaliation, or sit quietly by and let the upcoding occur? From this moment forward, Mary will face the pressure and consequences that while unfair, are typical and expected in healthcare. Let's assume Mary decides to confront the practice directly. Maybe she calls a compliance hotline or seeks out a supervisor to raise her concerns. If the hospital does the right thing at this stage, which is listen to Mary, investigate, and fix the issue, no case will ever be filed and everything is fine. However, as is so often the case, instead, if Mary is brushed off or even worse, punished for coming forward and the practice continues, Mary is left with little option but to report. Take a moment to think about what's going through Mary's head. She's not in sales or accounting, marketing, or some other profession where profits rule the day. She's a nurse who wants to help people. She gauges her own success not on how much money the hospital made, but on how well her patients do under her care. By forcing her to choose between compromising her morals and doing the right thing, the hospital has set itself up for failure. Mary might attempt to contact CMS or HHS directly. This would probably involve her leaving a message on an 800 number or submitting a form online. She may or may not get a call or email back, but she will not likely see any change as a result of her reporting. The hospital has simply brushed her aside. Mary will continue to talk to her friends and family and probably surf the internet at some point, looking for answers or help. Bear in mind at this stage, Mary has probably never even heard of the word KETAM. 
Mary knows CMS does not allow this type of upcoding. Their regulations are all available online and were taught to Mary in nursing school. She ends up on a website where she finds information that validates her position and informs her of her rights, so she gives the law firm a call. At this point, it is too late for the hospital to do anything to appease her other than admit its mistakes and pay back the overcharges. Mary is about to become a whistleblower. This initial phone call is a huge step psychologically. Mary is now prepared to discuss with a stranger, albeit an attorney, exactly what she has witnessed. I will say we get many calls from people that wish to remain anonymous while they decide if they even want to engage a lawyer, and we're totally fine with that. I can't speak for all firms, but I can tell you we spend a lot of time and resources dealing with this initial call. We think the most important thing to explain to Mary and anyone that calls us right off the bat is that they either do or do not have a case, why we believe it, and perhaps most importantly, what the impact of proceeding with filing a case will have for them. A great majority of calls we get are people who have witnessed something they believe is wrong, but it doesn't rise to the level of fraud needed to bring a KETAM case, and that's okay. I don't want to overlook the emotional and psychological impact on those people after they learn they don't have a case. It's significant. They worked up the courage to call us, and they shared intimate details of their experiences, only to learn there is very little we can do for them. So we try to give as much information as possible to people who call us, including other avenues they may proceed down, such as anonymous reporting or state bounty hunter programs. Despite this, I know they are often devastated to learn they don't have a case. Perhaps the best service we can provide these callers is educating them about what makes a good case. I can't tell you how many times someone has called us a year or two later and said they'd called us before and didn't have a case, and sure enough, now they do. So back to Mary. She calls us and we determine right off the bat that A, she knows what she's talking about, B, she has evidence to support her claims, and C, she wants to proceed despite us telling her about the long and treacherous road a whistleblower faces. Even though Mary has not filed anything yet, her psyche now takes on the official role of whistleblower. She feels validated and encouraged by our confirming her claims but she's anxious and leery of what lies ahead. We spend a good deal of time building these cases through tried and true investigative techniques developed at the FBI. Beyond reviewing and organizing the available evidence that our clients provide, we assemble detailed chronologies, information flow maps, witness cross-references, and other tools to support the case. We will discuss these tactics and more in episode three. Yet, as this process unfolds, Mary is back at work. While not universal, many clients experience a degree of paranoia, wherein they're constantly looking over their shoulder, wondering who knows what. This is to be expected, particularly in larger or quasi-criminal cases. In all likelihood, Mary feels as though her co-workers or supervisors are aware of her working with us to build the case. I can tell you from many years doing this that while there are certainly instances of companies tracking and surveilling employees, they are rare and only after the company becomes aware of the litigation. At this stage, the company is completely unaware of Mary's intent or our involvement. Remember, everything that Mary shares with us is subject to the attorney-client privilege, and no case has yet been filed. So, as Mary is working with us to build her case, she feels a bit paranoid, but eventually we reassure her that no one is aware of her intentions. A crucial mistake that many people make at this stage is to openly discuss their plans with friends and coworkers. We've actually had situations where we had to scramble to file a case because a client shared their plans with a colleague. That colleague then informed them that they too were thinking of filing such a case. 
this is probably a good time to discuss the first-to-file rule. The first-to-file rule provides that only the party who files first in time stands to participate in the recovery. Imagine your shock when you learn that the person at work you shared your plans with scoops you to the courthouse and you get nothing. Back to Mary. Remember, her employer refuses to change their ways and insists on continuing with the fraudulent billing. Mary is now confronted with another decision. Go along with this scheme or refuse and protest. This situation, as you might imagine, can weigh on one's conscience. Mary seeks guidance from her lawyers, but no attorney will recommend to their client to go along with a fraudulent scheme. So Mary tells her supervisor she's simply not comfortable doing this. She refuses to go along, and she's now changed to the graveyard shift in a different wing of the hospital. This is when we often see a distinct psychological, emotional change in our clients. They go from brave reporters of fraud to outcast ne'er-do-wells. Mary may start to have second thoughts about proceeding with the case. She might think not bringing her case is in her best interest. It's simply not worth it. Often, Mary will seek to find employment elsewhere during this time. If the case was already filed, she wouldn't be in control over the case, as it now belongs to the government. But in our scenario, the case is not yet filed. Mary feels incredible pressure to respond to this situation. And this is where our role as therapists come in. As we work cases up, we're in daily communication with our clients. At the end of the day, Mary was brave enough to speak up at work, refuse to go along, and eventually contact a lawyer. She's surely brave enough to continue the fight. So Mary goes back to work and she's emboldened. She has her eyes and ears open to look for further evidence of the fraud. An important practice point here is that the HIPAA laws actually provide for an exception in order to report fraud and crimes to the government. Mary's not yet under a legal obligation to remain quiet, but hopefully she's not talking to co-workers about her intentions. Once we file her case, the seal provisions of the False Claims Act kick in and she cannot discuss the case with anyone. But how did we get so quickly from point A, where Mary was confronted with a request to upcode, to point B, where Mary has now retained a Ketam law firm. The answer lies in how the employer conducted itself. I've done seminars for corporations wherein I give them a foolproof method to eliminate whistleblowing complaints. I do this because I know without question they won't follow my advice. My advice is a really simple three-point plan. Point one, and this one's beyond simple, I can't tell you how many times companies refuse to do this. Listen to your employees when they complain about such things. Had this hospital simply listened to Mary, she would have felt validated and respected. Instead, they brushed her aside, told her to simply do it or else, and then changed her shift and department in retaliation. Not listening does two things. First, it makes the potential whistleblower feel like an outsider. But second, and more importantly, it validates in the whistleblower's mind that something is wrong. Point two. Implement a compliance program designed to identify and correct violative behavior. Mary's Hospital has a robust and expensive compliance department, but they're simply focused on checking off the boxes rather than preventing actual fraud. She called them. They could easily discern that what she said was true and in violation of the regulations. Why didn't they? Point three, do not allow management to control the decisions of compliance. Imagine for a second that the internal affairs of a police department was controlled by the chief of police. That is often the situation at hospitals 
where operational vice presidents or other senior management ultimately control decisions of the compliance department. If a compliance officer knows they do not have top cover or that they won't be there for long if they don't go along with the schemes, what do you expect them to do? So why don't companies do these three simple things? The primary reason why is that they actually fool themselves into believing there is no fraud in the first place. Organizationally, you find that small lies, which are explained away by senior management and eventually accepted, lead to larger lies that are not questioned, as they are built upon the foundation of the smaller lies that are already accepted. In this instance, why should compliance bother looking into Mary's allegations when they have been told and accepted that billing in this way is absolutely legitimate. This was blessed by inside or outside counsel, and it's simply how everyone does it. The second most likely explanation is the underlying premise that no one gets hurt in these frauds. In a hospital setting, the clinical staff are focused on results and healing people. If a policy in accounting and billing results in the hospitals calling something more severe than it really is, but doing so allows the hospital to provide more care for more people than who is really hurt. This approach gets away from the front lines and moral dilemma that Mary faces and looks at a wider view. I also give presentations to nursing students and often explain to them that one day soon, after they graduate, they will face this exact situation. Many of them scoff and tell me I'm crazy, only to call or email me a year later in disbelief. In the case of Mary, the hospital allowed a practice, namely the upcoding of treatments, to be implemented despite being informed by their nurse that it was in violation of CMS regulations. What does the hospital value more, Mary and her morals or money? So we focus back on Mary and her case is now getting filed. Soon, she'll be interviewed by the government. And when I say government, I mean both the United States Attorney's Office for the district where the case is filed, as well as the Department of Justice. This interview is usually done at the U.S. Attorney offices at a time convenient for Mary and her lawyers. We will discuss specifics of the interview process in a later podcast, but now I want to talk about what goes through Mary's mind. In all likelihood, this is the first and only opportunity for Mary to get on the soapbox and tell her story to the government. No matter how many interviews we have done, and no matter how many admonitions we give our clients, a universal truth unfolds during the interview whistleblowers get emotional. Many clients cry. Some get choked up. Others have very deep, cathartic experiences. There is something about being questioned by the government that makes the process more formal, more real, and more important than clients ever imagined. Whistleblowers, now we'll call them relators, are asked to share the details of what led them to file and share insight on the players behind the fraud. Some of those implicated are friends, some are enemies, but the process is always emotional. At the conclusion of the interview, we'll usually debrief with our clients at nearby offices. I speak to many clients the next day who tell me they never slept as good as the night before. A weight was lifted and the burden shifted to the government. The next stage in the emotional and psychological evolution of a relator is perhaps the most difficult, the waiting. These cases take on average four years to conclude. After being interviewed and perceiving a high level of interest from the government, clients will usually expect to hear results in weeks or months. The reality is they often hear nothing for a year or two. I have seen this time great on clients over and over again, particularly when allegations involve patient harm, Relators are dumbfounded that the government does literally nothing for months on year's end. The next psychological emotional stage is when the government decides whether to intervene in the case or not. This decision can come at any time, 
but usually occurs after the completion of the government's investigation, around years one to two. When the government decides to decline intervention, relators feel undermined and sabotaged. They feel disappointed in their government. They came forward with detailed allegations supported by evidence, and the government says their case stinks. Well, the government's decision is not a comment on the underlying value or credibility of the case. It has to do with many other factors, such as lack of resources, public policy, lack of institutional or agency support, or simply a disagreement on the facts or interpretations of regulations. When we inform our clients about declinations, they almost always have the same reaction. How is this possible? Do they not believe me? Relators begin a course of self-doubt and second-guessing. Sometimes we learn from the government why the case lacks legs. And when we share that with the clients, they often have a response, a retort for the government, which challenges this basis. Depending on the assistant U.S. attorney and DOJ lawyers, the actual process for declination can take many months. During this time, we have candid conversations with our clients. They need to evaluate the prospects moving forward without the government. Many people are unaware that relators can actually proceed with the action in the absence of government intervention. Most recently, there have been huge successful cases resolved without the government involved at all. When the government intervenes, there is an entirely different feeling for relators. They are validated and vindicated, despite there being no recovery yet. Statistically speaking, the case is highly likely to resolve at this stage. Approximately 94% of intervened cases resolve at the settlement stage. The final piece of emotional transition is dealing with settlement and relator share allocations. In some cases, the government will share their relator share position with us in advance of settlement negotiations. This makes life easy for the relator and for us as we know moving forward what they stand to gain. However, the government more recently has taken a more critical assessment of relator share and drives a hard bargain. When this happens, the relator can again feel let down or outside the process. Without them, there'd be no case. Why is DOJ sticking to only 15% when the law provides up to 25%? At the end of the day, these cases are substantial, and the recovery to the clients is similarly substantial. Once the case is resolved and the client is paid, they evaluate the experience. We always ask our clients whether they would do it all over again if they could, and for the most part, they say yes, even those who receive nothing. In summation, Whistleblowers should expect to experience an emotional roller coaster, ranging from fear to pride and eventually some self-doubt. Ketam lawyers should expect to be a therapist and emotional crutch in times of need. This process can be grueling, especially when whistleblowers continue in their jobs for the fraudsters. Though long, stressful, and often unrewarding, at the end of the day, the whistleblowing experience is usually worthwhile with few regrets. Join us in our next podcast as we dig into the types of cases and programs upon which key teams can be based. We'll include such topics as healthcare fraud, defense contractor fraud, government grant fraud, and the IRS and SEC whistleblower programs. Mm-hmm.